Cool. Okay. So I'm just accepting people into here. <laughs> okay, welcome everyone to London South Bank University's mini masterclass, Skills for Net Zero Built Environment. My name is Sky Pierce and I'm the Community Manager at Engineers Assemble. Um, I was going to give a bit of an introduction today, but there are three speakers, so I want to give time for you guys to introduce yourself. Um, Pippa, if you want to go first and then carry on with your topics afterwards. Hello, I'm I'm Pippa Palmer. I'm a research strategist at LSBU. I work with Aaron and Tony, and um, my research specialism is um, systems change in the built environment. And um, it's particularly around retrofits, it seems to be an area of interest, but very much about um, how we change for the net zero transition. I also curate the climate emergency series for LSBU, which addresses some of those big issues. I'll hand you over to my colleague, Aaron. Uh, thank you, Pippa. Um, yeah, so my name is Aaron Gillick. I'm a professor of building decarbonisation. Um, and I'm the director of the Net Zero Building Center, which is a joint venture between Bizria and LSBU. Um, and my main area of interest kind of in, in, in research is in doing whatever we can to accelerate the decarbonization of buildings this decade uh, and responding to the imperative of climate change. Um, Tony, over to you. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Yes, my name's Tony Day. Um, I was uh, a nurse while professor at London South Bank University over 10 years ago. Um, and now an independent uh, research consultant in the energy space. And I've been helping uh, the university put together the uh, net zero carbon uh, short courses that uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, today. Okay, thank you. And to Dan, I want to say hello. Thank you very much, Tony. Hi, everyone. So I, uh, I'm here supporting uh, Tony, Pippa and Aaron on uh, all things net zero, um, especially the, the four net zero courses that we have available um, sort of subsequent to these call, uh, this, this talk. So uh, nice to meet you all. And thank you. Do you guys want to get started with the topics now? Um, and just a reminder to everyone that everyone who asks questions will be entered into a prize draw for the Amazon Echo Dot after um, the questions are asked at the end. Yes, well, we, 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 we start with um, Professor Gillick giving a talk about the net zero imperative. We'll move on to um, I'll talk about systems change and then Tony will talk about the role of the professional um, and then we'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how um, professionals in this sector can prepare for the net zero transition which is happening fast and rapidly and then we will be very happy to take lots and lots of questions and an incentive to, to, to ask us questions so please do we love that so I shall hand over to Aaron over to you. Okay, sure. Thank you. Um, so I guess this is where that's my cue to share my screen, right? Um, let me see if I can do that. Uh, there we go. So that hopefully is working and I can full screen that and we'll crack on here. Um, so I like to open um, these kinds of conversations um, uh, about net zero with just kind of a, a quick stock take sort of, of what the term really means and in particular what it means for the built environment for, for our area. Um, I think the 
it, it's great that the phrase has become so widely adopted now in, in recent years and has become kind of a, a part of common parlance. And and, uh, and that's a good thing because it has such sort of wide reaching implications really for all of us. And I think it's going to start to uh, dominate more and more of our kind of decision making, I guess, the lens through which we view a lot of other problems. Um, so. This graph kind of sums that up to me, right? This is the lens through which we have to view all these other problems is this is what the world, this is the whole world here, what the whole world needs to do to uh, respond to the imperative of climate change and reach net zero by 2050. So what does that really mean? Net zero by 2050 came about as a phrase off the back of the uh, UN um, uh, cl uh, climate scenarios, and then it was really popularized by the Paris Climate Agreement as part of what we need to do basically in order to keep the world to 1.5 degrees of, of climate change. Uh, we've already had over one degree, around 1.1 degrees of climate change. We're already uh, exceeding that threshold, so we're closing in on 1.5 degrees very quickly. Uh, and if we go beyond that, if we if we don't meet the sort of uh, scenarios here on the, on the screen, um, we start to enter kind of a a, a world of devastation that nobody really wants to talk about too much. Uh, it, it starts to get uh, much more problematic, all the kind of impacts of climate change that we're already witnessing now in a world with one degree start to become much more exacerbated and we run the risk of big feedback loops and, and things like that. So it very it is very, very critical that we keep that idea of net zero by 2050 in our thinking at all times, that that is a very important um, uh, milestone that we we must hit if we want to keep the world in a recognizable shape. Um, <clears throat> something I think that we don't quite recognize when we talk about net zero by 2050 is just how much of the work has to happen quickly. Right? So that dark blue band on the screen um, shows kind of this what a lot of people started to call the decisive decade on climate change, right? The 2020s were going to be the decisive decade on climate change. And we say that because um, if we have any hope of getting to net zero by 2050, we have to do at least half the work by 2030. Uh, now, the dotted line is is a scenario, right? It's hypothetical. There, there, there's any number of different scenarios out there and quite a wide range of them. They all have a slightly different shape. They all have a different target by 2030. The one on the screen has more than half, but what they all have in common is that they have at least half the work done by 2030, right? So there's no avoiding the tough decisions and just saying, oh, we'll deal with this in 2040. All we got to do is get to zero by 2050. We got to get to zero by 2050 and halfway there by 2030. And that's getting more and more challenging, right? When I started, I used this slide a couple of years ago um, when it was 2020 and that blue line was sort of current, you know, the current date. Um, we're now basically a third of the way through this decisive decade, right? And we're a third of the way through and we have not made a third of the progress, not by a long shot. Um, emissions are effectively still increasing, right? When you take account for little blips like COVID and, 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 and sort of other kind of uh, circumstances uh, that, that, that have sort of stalled emissions, we have not done any significant reversal of, the, the, of this curve to actually decrease emissions. So we've done nowhere near the amount of work we need to be by this point in the decisive decade. And so the phrasing that usually accompanies a graph like this has been changing. Like the headlines in how this is reported uh, have been changing and now we, you just see the phrase now or never basically <laughs> now or never we're, we're all, you know we're, as i say we're a third of the way through this decisive decade and we need to get at least half our emissions globally by by the end of this decade to sort of keep this hope of 1.5 alive um 
What, another thing I think that's interesting is for us in the built environment. So what, what the the phrase net zero is based on the idea of of net, right? That we won't be able to get a literal exact zero uh, carbon emissions in all sectors of the economy. There are just some areas that are too difficult to decarbonize, um, especially in the timescales allowed. And so the idea of net is that you're allowed some offsets. You know, there are, there are carbon removal technologies, there are plants, you know, trees and other kinds of activities that we can un undertake that would net off uh, some, some of those emissions. Um, and that also is, is it's got it's a misleading phrase in some ways because it tempts us into thinking that our portion of the economy, whatever our portion is, that's going to be one of those hard to treat sectors that we can just net off with some clever carbon accounting or some offsets somewhere else, right? Um, and for the built environment, that's really not the case. Like as, as challenging as it is for us to decarbonize the built environment, it's actually a lot easier than it is for things like food production, uh, heavy industry, a lot of uh, transport and things like that. Uh, they're actually considered much harder to decarbonize. So the net portion of the word net zero is gonna be reserved for all those other sectors. And the built environment has to focus on the word zero in the net, in the in the in the phrase net zero, not the net part, the the word zero. Um, <clears throat> and so, particularly when you think about how much progress we have to make by 2030, um, and the scale of decarbonization that we have to face in the built environment, right? And that idea that we can't just kick down the kick the can down the road, we can't just offset this by some other uh, means. We need to make some hard decisions and some clever design choices and get to a true zero as quickly as we possibly can in the built environment. Um, and so the UK has created sort of strategies for this, right? We have like a net zero strategy. We have a heating and building strategy. We have plans for how to do this and, and, and built environment among them, right? But the problem with our net zero plans is that every analysis that's been done on this has highlighted a, a, an absolute gulf of knowledge and skills between where we are now and where we need to be, right? There's been quite a few different studies on this now at this point, and it's a fairly unanimous uh, consensus that that we need to rapidly, rapidly upskill effectively every single job in <clears throat> the built environment, right? Across the entire construction sector from every sort of step of design through operation uh, and, and everything in between. Um, and that needs to focus on every kind of skill level as well, right? It's not just about uh, the, the trades, it's not just about the professions, it's about all of us, right? At all skill levels. So I think that has a few sort of important implications. Uh, one is that we're, we're moving more and more away from this idea of green jobs, actually. There's not gonna be anything quite labeled as a green job. It's gonna be more just a green infusion of green skills across all jobs, right? So it touches, as we said, literally every single role in the built environment is gonna have to upskill and reskill what they do around this sort of net zero imperative and 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 the changes that are going to have to happen this decade right um and that has to happen quickly right so how do you kind of drive this change in our sort of habits and our and our, and our skill levels now i'm going to focus in particular here on um the professions because that's one of the areas that we're talking about particularly with these short courses but as i say this does cover the, the the demand for green knowledge and skills covers the entire range of skill levels, but focusing in on higher education and the professions for one moment. Um, this was a document that was released last year uh, by the CIC, it's the Construction Industry Council, um, uh, in collaboration with a number of other groups like, like the EDGE and, and, and groups like that. 
Um, they basically sat there and got as many of the professions into one room as possible. So that's, you know, the, the anyone that accredits professional engineers, professional architects, surveyors, a whole host, over 30 in total now, signatories have signed up this document, which spells out the next few years as these sort of short, medium and long term skills changes that you're going to have to undertake if you want to maintain professional status or become a new professional in any of these uh, careers related to, to the built environment. So it's a very wide reaching document. If you haven't seen this already, I strongly encourage you to pick it up and have a look. It's got uh, it, it's not too long, you know, it's like 30 or so pages uh, and it sets out these sort of these different action areas across the uh, sort of skills that we're going to have to to undertake. Um, one of them, particularly relevant to us in universities and higher education, is quite literally how we accredit our degree programs. Like what are we teaching new graduates that, that are going to go out in the world and, and, and impact all these changes? Um, and I think that's wonderful. And as we go through sort of our reaccreditation process, we're constantly kind of updating the curriculum and we're now going to be guided by this document that says how we can update our curriculum in a way that uh, puts climate action at the heart of what we teach. Uh, so this is absolutely fantastic, right? The only problem with this is that it is going to be too slow, right? If you think about that idea of the decisive decade again, right, that, that this kind of this, this curve here, what has to happen by the end of this decade, right? Anybody who comes on to a degree now, they're going to be at least three years, maybe four, maybe longer if they're an apprentice or doing it part time, you know, and then they would do some other educational requirements and then they would become a professional engineer uh, in, in, in some role. And so we're looking at almost a decade here. We're well into the 2030s before sort of new changes to our curriculum are going to start to really steadily impact the, the what people are doing in the professions, right? What, what people are doing in the professions. So we need something quicker. Right now, CPD is going to play a very big role in this, right? Um, in, in in meeting this, if I go back a slide here, CPD is going to play, play a very big role in meeting this um, CIC action plan. But there's a very important role for higher education as well, right? This sort of the idea of the depth and the rigor of the material and the sort of wide reach that higher education has across all the different sort of aspects of the built environment. Um, there's a very important role, I think, for higher education in addressing this action plan. The trick is we have to find a way to do it quicker. It's something that's that sits. It's a bit more rigorous and in depth than a CPD, but it's not as long as a full degree program, right? Um, and so very fortunately, the Department for Education, the DFE, uh, through the Office for Students, has created this uh, short course trial program, right? Where they basically want to set up uh, a new mode of learning in higher education that lets people um, dip in to uh, higher education, to universities for short courses, you know, uh, here and there, maybe a few months or a year at a time uh, throughout their lives, right? And basically either reskill or upskill um, what they're doing. Now, this has nothing to do strictly with net zero or with uh, climate change. This is a, you know, nationwide effort. They're, they're, they're building this, this new mode of learning. And we thought this was a perfect vehicle for uh, accelerating uh, net zero skills in higher education, right? And so we applied to be one of a few of the pilots that are going to be launching for this here now shortly in a couple of months. Um, and so we have created a few programs that we think respond to this idea of the sort of uh, the scale and the urgency, but with the rigor of, of, of higher education. Um, 
So we'll unpack a few of those, especially those ideas of, of pace and scale here over this session. Um, but I think for now, I've, I've done kind of a bit of a, a, an overall context there for, for uh, what net zero means and what it means for the built environment and how quickly we need to be um, mobilizing ourselves here. Um, so I think with that, I'm going to just uh, stop sharing my screen. I'll try to do that without uh, causing a disaster here. There's the button and I'll throw it back to uh, Pippa. There we go. Thank you, Pippa. Cheers. Thank you. And I am going to hopefully share my screen. Um, is that can, is, is that all OK? Can you see that, everybody? Can you see my screen? No. Nope. You can see uh, Aaron. <laughs> oh, I can see Aaron. You can't see my screen. Oh, uh, yeah, there we go. You can see my screen. Um, OK, fantastic. Yeah. OK, sorry. A little, little bit of a tech hitch. You'd think after a couple of years of doing this, this online stuff, we'd have got the hang of it, wouldn't you? Um, so so um, thank you for coming along and um, to follow on from what Aaron is saying, talking about systems change for net zero and how we evolve our practices for this rapidly changing world and a world that actually needs to change very rapidly. Um, we developed the um, OFS short courses um, based on our understanding and and um sort of sort of position within this this sector um very very much leaders of educating for this particular sort of um sector sector of construction segment of construction and our evidence base comes um from our academic research it comes from the sector commentary that we watch all the time our climate emergency series which addresses the big issues um, and our engagement with the sector, we carry out consultations all the time. We're constantly having having um, engagement with and asking, you know, um, the question. We look at national and local policy. We look at market movements. We look at innovation and technical developments. And all of this underpins our sort of systems change theory of how we approach the, the way we change for this net zero world. And systems change is interesting. Um, when we start thinking about the world as a set of interconnected systems, everything changes. Rather than making small changes that, that don't have an impact, you change at the place that has the, uh, the, the maximum impact and ripples through. And I would advise anybody who's looking to, to understand systems change in more detail, the Forum of the Future has a very, very good part um, section on sustainability, system change for sustainability. And this is what this massive, massive transition is about. It's a big change of systems. We're changing the systems by which we supply energy, receive energy, connect energy, and how we actually, as professionals within that sector, go about doing that. Um, and there are six steps to the to making these big changes. It starts with the experiencing the need for change. As Aaron said many years ago, you're going to have to make this rapid transition. Diagnosing the system is the next change. And then pioneering practices. And many, many of us in the sector have been there a long, long time, have been thinking about this for a long, long time, and perhaps thought a little bit nutty several years ago to be banging on about this net zero thing, this carbon issue. Um, but ultimately it gains traction and we get enough knowledge and traction to enable a tipping point. And this is now driven by legislation and we now are at that tipping point where we're rapidly, rapidly having to make the change. And we need to embed that so we can sustain the, the transition and, and then set new rules because this will then become the mainstream. And change can be tricky. Um, 
architects declare we, we we work with lots of partner organization architects declare i love this little guide they put out the practice guide 2021 anyone working in the um, construction and built environment sector meeting the needs of our societies within the earth's ecological boundaries will demand a paradigm shift in practice and so we're looking at organizationally organizations have to change and individually individuals have to change the way we do stuff has to change what does it look like? Well, the paradigm shifts that we're seeing is this this is emerging mega trend of, of, of zero carbon, the zero carbon transition. Um, we used to build for today. We're now very much looking at life cycle thinking, entire life cycle of a building, not just operational. We're looking at future proofing. We're looking at what buildings will become later, how they will become viable and usable and affordable in the future and a massive massive shift that that's been been happening over the um sort of last decade is that buildings are now being viewed as assets they're not just bricks and mortar they're actually assets they're assets on a balance sheet and as with every asset it can also become a liability so a building that guzzles carbon that costs a fortune to run that this is a blot on the company's reputation is a stranded asset it's it's a bad asset so buildings as positive assets is really really important as, as a shift in thinking another aspect that um has been very much um taking hold is we we used to view the engineering as a static learning static systems and processes we knew what we knew and we did what we knew and we carried on doing it but what we're looking at now as we resolve a lot of the issues and new technologies come on board we're looking at continuous evolution you don't just get your degree and stop learning i mean you, you know it, it it's it, it's the whole system is continuously evolving so this need to continuously learn is is important too we know that within the built environment sector when you're when you're delivering projects when you're when you're working for clients there there are lots of um you know, you, it, the, the drivers used to come very much from the top down. You know, you'd be told what to do and it came down the chain and it came down through the chain of command within the sector as well, you know, within within the job itself. Now, what we're looking at now is multi-level pressures. You've got drivers coming in from many, many different places, social value, decarbonisation, um, you, you know, the skills. You've got lots and lots and lots of pressures. You're not just looking at buildings, you're looking at ecosystems. They're very, very different pressures coming in from different places and lots of balancing to do but that also means you have multiple stakeholders and that has a really really important thing because instead of just answering to the some somebody at the top you actually are having to please and and engage these stakeholders all the way through and that means our traditional hierarchies are changing where we had this, this, this sort of sort of building blocks of, of, of you know uh, drivers from the top, authority from the top. We're now looking at working in partnership. Partnership is absolutely key and collaboration is key as well. So bringing those stakeholders together and working in collaboration, these are really, really important new skills for a, a new way of thinking. And this systemic change is going to, to require a different mindset and a different culture at organisational level and at an individual level. How we view ourselves as professionals within this sector starts to shift. So the first thing about collaboration is you, you unite around a common purpose, a central purpose. And that central purpose now needs to be this deep connection with the purpose of working for a flourishing planet and people. 
it's not just about getting the job in on time on budget and and it, you know as cheaply as possible it's this central purpose of looking at the impact on the planet and the people and how it will flourish and how it will be future proof and and um fit for purpose and so so that's the first part of collaboration but from a mindset point of view again th these are from forum of the future and, and do go and have a look at them in depth if if, if you want to, to know more but the things that 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 we need to do mean that we as individuals have to be curious we have to be questioning we also have to be really agile we have to be constant learners we have to learn continuously we have to embrace this culture of collaboration working to the shared purpose and vision learning how to build trust and commitment the 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 the, the construction sector can be very very combative and, and legislative and sort of you know um, lots of litigation but it's about building trust and commitment through these processes and having governance and processes in place to ensure that things go as they should. But the ultimate goal of every team is value creation, and that is value for the planet as well as for the, the prosperity of, of the, the, the company you work for. So it's looking then at that, that, that central purpose, always at the heart of what we do. To do this, you're going to need to be climate literate. You're going to need to be a listener. Really important when you're working in, in, in shared teams to become listeners. And to become visionary, to start to 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 to, to have visions for what right looks like, and the really really core skills that are so needed is to become communicators and communicators who can express the good and the bad, who who can raise difficult issues, who who've, who've got the courage to do that, and influencing other people who may not be in the same place on the journey, who may not have the same mindset to actually come with you on this journey to galvanise around this central purpose of the net zero doing what's right for the planet. And it's important that we take this responsibility on because we are cogs in a very, very big machine. And Tara Gablade, this wonderful, wonderful architect who um, has won more awards than I have got time to tell you about, um, Tara came and spoke at the Climate Emergency Series on the embodied carbon and the race to net zero. Talked very eloquently about the way she's approached challenging assumptions and, and building new buildings and, or buildings in, an, in a new way. And she said, we as architects and built environment specialists make a myriad of daily decisions that will either help regenerate or continue to degrade our planet. And so it's those individual decisions we're making this is so critical and the way we do it and the skills with which we do it are really really key so that is my um brings me to an end but it ties in very nicely to what tony is going to talk about which is the role of the professional and um how we shape the future in in this world so i'll stop sharing my screen and hand you over to Tony. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pippa. So I will now attempt to start sharing my screen. So hopefully you can see see that. Um, yeah, Pippa, can you just confirm that's all? See yeah, that? I can see that. that. All, all good. All good. Excellent. So. 
Um, thanks. And yeah, so what I'm going to talk about the role of the professional in this uh, transition to net zero. So we've heard about the urgency. Um, we've heard about the, the the types of change that we need that we need to affect. So what's our role? Um, and I'm I'm guessing the audience here comprises people from across uh, across the um, the building sector and the construction sector and the perhaps building operations sector. Um, and what do we what do we need to do? What can we do in terms of uh, affecting this change? So one of the big questions has always been: Is it the government push? Is it is it government policy that's got to push? this agenda onto us or is it going to be the market pull will there be a desire from for uh, building owners operators the whole construction society at large to, to demand it and and, uh, and and pull this into existence it's a bit of both and i want to just take us back um sort of 20 years so 20 years ago the uh, the london mayor the the newly established london mayor and the greater london authority um set up the uh, were at the time devising the London plan it was released in 2003 and the London plan there's a, this slide here is something that we produced as a bit of monitoring um, for the impacts of the London plan uh, after it had been in place uh, for about six years so about 2006 2007 uh, we we did some uh, reporting on how well that London plan and the energy strategy within the London plan had actually um, made an impact. Now, what was really interesting, the London plan required all new buildings that were referred to them to mayor, all, all new um, uh, projects to, to, to be strate strategic projects that would be referred to the mayor to have uh, a um, low carbon agenda. So there would be an energy efficiency requirement. There would be uh, a clean energy requirement. There'd be a renewable energy. Be clean, be lean, be clean, be green. That mantra is still there. It's still part of the London plan. There's now they've now added a new one, be seen, which actually I think is really important because we have we will have to be seen to be operating net zero buildings into the future. I think that's really uh, key. But that's but, but uh, let's have a look at this for now. So basically, basically you submitted uh, and, and many of you will probably be involved in these kind of uh, planning applications. You, you have to show what the baseline emissions would be if you had no measures and then energy efficiency savings. And then uh, if you had some clean energy, particularly CHP, uh, although that's now beginning to to fall out of favour, of course, for a variety, it's not as carbon efficient as other solutions, um, but then put in renewable energy solutions uh, to get, now to start with, it was 10% of your carbon emissions then, of, of the rest of the carbon emissions had to be shaved off by renewables. Uh, the London plan eventually changed that to 20%. Um, that the the mayor's team asked us to say, to, to, to show the um, that 20% was possible. We said that's a political decision. It's always possible. But they they made a political decision to to, to put in that 20% renewable energy requirement. What was interesting about this at the time when this was first released, I remember an article in the Sibsey Journal, and I'm seeing the latest Sibsey Journal has just hit my desk this morning. But then what was really surprising, there was an article in the Sibsey Journal back then saying the, why 10 reasons why the London plan won't work. And it had had all sorts of reasons for saying why building services professionals and architects should not be told what to do in terms of planning their buildings. And 
yet they had to do it. The whole point was that there was a there was a regulation, there was a local regulation in place that if you didn't do that, you weren't going to get your building built. And those kind of delays in planning applications cost an awful lot of money, focused an awful lot of time and effort. Uh, and in fact, building services engineers then, uh, and I was always surprised that the industry was was resistant to this because it was additional fees to do the master planning, uh, low carbon master planning, and then you probably get more fees because you'd win the work to actually design and build the building. So, um, and in fact, that's that's what's transpired. So since those days, what these what this graph showed is in fact those planning applications were largely successful. The London plan, in time, succeeded in getting better plans, better designs of buildings with low carbon um, uh, with low carbon solutions. Now that has therefore meant that we've transformed that sec the, the, the industry. In London, L London became a hub of uh, zero carbon, uh, low and zero carbon engineering and architectural expertise because we had to do it and therefore the uh, the sector uh, had people who were trained to do it but found ways of innovating to, to, to get there. So the market eventually can overtake regulation and I think we've seen that uh, in, in recent years, certainly in the last decade, regulations haven't been tightened maybe as fast as we might have liked. In fact, they were reversed in some cases with the Code for Sustainable Homes. But the market has actually overtaken that. So a good example here is the London Energy Transformation Initiative, LETI, um, which where, where individuals saw a, an absolute need for, uh, for to, to move far, farther and faster to respond to regulation, but actually to, to, to really respond to the climate emergency that uh, people felt were not being addressed possibly by uh, central government, local government and, and regulation. So Letty, the Letty design guides and now the, the um, retrofit guide uh, go further and, uh, uh, and f faster. And the idea is to transform our skills and knowledge base and pra best practices so that we can, uh, we can do more, do better. So, uh, and I think regulation is now going to start catching up with, with, with the market, but there certainly seems to be an appetite, certainly from, from the client perspective. Clients want to build buildings, uh, they want to procure buildings that are low carbon and, um, and net zero ready, uh, if not net zero already. So we have, um, we have an impetus that's actually uh, overtaken government requirement. And so there are these catalysts, uh, the catalysts for change into some engineers, uh, and I'm not, I don't want to exclude all the other professionals that are on, in the audience out there, but uh, I'm an engineer, so I'm, I'm talking from an engineering perspective. But there are real challenges that actually need to be addressed, and that requires new design thinking. So a lot of the design practice hasn't been able to keep up with the pace of change. And, and this graph here, I think, is just an example of so re government regulation back in the back in the 1990s, they gave us regulation in the electricity sector that pushed for the dash for gas. So we moved from coal to gas very quickly. That started the decarbonisation of the electricity sector. What we've seen in the last decade is um, is that the again regulation started this with um, uh, that we have the renewable renewables obligation uh, and then now contracts for differences that have been. 
um, accelerating decarbonisation of the electricity sector. And that graph there is showing the carbon factor, the carbon intensity of the UK electricity grid, which has been decarbonising much more rapidly than anybody expected. When I started teaching renewables back in the early 90s and students would stare at me and say, what, what are you talking about? We're never going to deal with a, a wind turbine or a photovoltaic cell in our working lives. Well, it, uh, because everybody said at the time that the electricity sector said you can't have more than 10% renewables on the grid. Well, we do now. Some days we have 50% plus uh, more renewables on the grid. And we've seen uh, the carbon intensity drop from 500 grams to uh, below 200 grams. And the target is now to be below 100 grams by 2030. So that's a driver and that's actually causing us to, to think more about the electrification of heat, for example, electrification of heat and transport. But that's going to be delivering a whole heap of new challenges. This graph here is the energy um, uh, is the energy supply um, uh, on, on both the gas grids and the electricity grids, actually from from the peak week and the, the beast from the east a few years ago. And what we can see, the blue lines there, the solid blue line, that's the peak power uh, gas gas delivery rate or gas power delivery rate, if you like, um, and uh, uh, over over a week. And the red lines below are the uh, the electric electricity demand in that week. The peak gas demand, 200 gigawatts plus, um, and the and the, and the ele electricity, uh, 50 gigawatts. So gas, actually, the gas grid delivers four to five times some at some at some times of the day five times more um, power than the electricity network. The peak generation capacity in the UK is something like seventy, maybe it's seventy-five. I, I, I'm not sure the latest numbers gigawatts. So if you were to transfer all of that power, all of that energy um, from the gas grid to the electricity networks, the networks would fall over. We can't do that. If you were to provide that, supply that with that heat, with um, uh, heat pumps, you would still be doubling demand, uh, peak demand on the electricity networks. So uh, the way the networks are con configured right now, and particularly in local areas behind certain transformers, you would find local networks would struggle more than others. So what we as engineers and designers have to do now is if we're going to decarbonize heat, um, uh, in, in new buildings and retrofit buildings, we will have to be talking to the, the local electricity network operators to ensure that there is enough capacity to do it. Uh, and there are ways of it's not just about uh, transferring all of that energy to it. So we have to reduce the amount of energy demand. We have to spread that demand better. So it's about smart systems. It's about uh, it's about ensuring the most efficient systems and it's about uh, the data management it's about tariffs it's about uh, the value of energy it's about the value of carbon so there's a whole new raft of issues that as designers and as building operators we will have to be uh, working with the, right across the supply chain to in order to uh, get us uh, workable solutions that that that, uh, that um we can deliver. You know, one of the one of the questions has always been, well, we, we'll just put hydrogen into the gas network. Uh, there's a lot of debate around that, and maybe that's going to be a solution, but it's not going to be there now. There is no zero carbon hydrogen that's available or very not at any scale or, or affordability. So there's a long time before 
the hydrogen ready stuff comes on board that's zero carbon. So we're going to be doing this electrification uh, journey for some years to come, probably this decade, and we're going to have to do best practice. So that's some of the challenges. So what do we need to do as professionals? And I'm guessing that many people on uh, are, uh, in the audience there, um, you're uh, skilled graduates perhaps, um, and have been working in the sector for a long time and maybe not clear about where's the where is the best practice where's the next lot of guidance uh, coming from who's delivering that guidance where you know where are we going to be getting this knowledge so we have to be up to speed with the latest guidance standards and regulations uh, and that guidance as I said it's got to keep pace with I I, I, I actually see that best practice is ahead of perhaps a lot of the standard guidance and there is a bit of a catch-up that's going on so how do we as professionals feed into that uh, so continued learning is actually feeding our best knowledge into the networks and, and uh, making sure that we're part of that journey and looking at that longer term planning. So it's not about the building that we're building now. And a lot of the solutions are kind of net zero ready. Well, they have to be net zero ready then. So we have to think about that building that how, how will it become a zero energy, a zero carbon building um, by 2030, for example. So. We want to lead and influence by affecting change. And I would suggest that, you know, by keeping that continued professional learning um, is important in terms of the, the new knowledge that that provides. And what, with that new knowledge and having the confidence to lead, that leads you, the professional, to be the, the leaders that's going to affect this change. Um, and you need to extend those networks. They need to be outside of your own professional silos to ensure that uh, you're talking across the disciplines. If you're an architect, talk to engineers. If you're an engineer, talk to uh, talk to talk to architects, to surveyors, uh, to construction, uh, to, to the construction professionals right the way across the supply chain, the, the client um, and the, and the uh, people who are doing the procurement. And make sure that we foster these collaborative practices that Pippa was talking about earlier on. It's absolutely essential. There's no, we can't design these buildings in, in isolation any longer uh, for, for some of the reasons that I've already sort of outlined earlier on. So there is an urgency. Um, the time is now. We really have to do this. And we all have to be part of the conversation. We're all part of the solution. And I think that the continued learning and these, these short courses that South Bank are, uh, uh, are launching are part of that story about how we can uh, we can we can start to accelerate that pace of change um so yeah thank you for listening that's uh, that's my piece i'll hand you back to pippa hello well i think i've probably said enough so it's time for aaron to come and talk about the scale and pace of change because when you look at the figures it is a little bit eye-watering and you will realize why your skills are going to be in very very big demand so i'm going to hand you over to aaron okay that's this one here the pace and scale of change so uh thank you Pippa. so um the pace and scale of change. I think this kind of follows on uh, well from what Tony was in, in discussing, uh, uh, and I'm, I liked a few of the things he mentioned about the scale of the gas grid, the scale of the uh, changes that are going to happen around our kind of core energy infrastructure and just what that means. Um, so in, in, in discussing the pace and scale of change, I think it's important to sort of highlight a few 
headline figures here. So the one on the left hand side of your screen there, uh, 600,000. Um, you might have seen this number in the headlines. It, it was uh, it came from the 10 point infrastructure plan. It was basically the target of installing 600,000 uh, heat pumps per year by 2028. So a little over five years from now um, is the, the, the target was made a few years ago, which is up from I mean, we do around 50 ish thousand right now. So it's a like a step change increase. Um, so anything you've heard about that number, if you've seen that number 600,000 in the media, you've probably heard it accompanied by one of two thoughts. The first one being that it's a pipe dream, that it's pie in the sky, way too many, really ambitious, we'll never get from 50,000 to 600,000 in just the next few years. Um, and the other thing being that it's not nearly enough, right? The Committee on Climate Change wanted a million per year. You know, we, we have this many homes to do by 2030 and that many by 2050 and so on. So 600,000 gets a drop in the bucket. It is both unrealistically too ambitious and hopelessly not ambitious enough. Um, and unfortunately, both of those things are kind of true at the same time, right? It is ambitious. It is a very big step change uh, from where we are now. Uh, and it also is not enough. We need to go even further. Um, the number on the right hand side of the screen, uh, which makes me think that we can go further, um, this 1.6 million is the number of gas boilers that we install this year and every year and the year before and every year past for, for, for the last decade. We, we've been at this level pretty consistently for a while in terms of the number of gas boilers uh, that we install per year. So it's really interesting to me in thinking about that question of scale and change uh, that we're going to undertake this decade. How did we do that? How did we get up to 1.6 million gas boilers per year uh, where that's just what we do? That's just part of the system. We go into uh, 1.6 million homes and install 1.6 million new heating systems. Uh, how, how, how do we do that? Well, we got there sort of uh, through an evolution of market transformation programs, right? If you, you kind of go way back to when we first started to install the gas grid, um, they basically hardly anybody had central heating at all, at all. Like, and even that 2.5 million number you see on the screen there, that was created through its own sort of market transformation program. It took a long time to get up to 2.5 million, right? But even that 2.5 million is not a lot of central heating systems. So you had to go door to door basically and tell people all about these fancy new gas boilers, fancy new central heating systems. Uh, we're gonna cut open your walls, put these pipes everywhere. You'll have heating in every room, this whole idea of, of central heating and a central distribution system that people had never even heard of before. And they had to go from a standing start where people had never even heard of the concept to basically almost every single person having one, They're like 14 million installations within a decade. Uh, and they went from that standing start to 14 million in, in one decade. The pace that they did this at was basically the pace we need to do now. They got up to 1 million per year in less than a decade, right? They hit 1 million a year after like seven or so years of this, uh, and they've been at a million ever since, right? And so you look at the grid now, in the last 50 years, we've pretty much just consolidated that centralized role for gas, right? And you've got twice as many homes now, but they pretty much all still have gas, right? And so now thinking about what we need to do to undo that, right? And this is now looking ahead to 2050, not just the 2030 targets, but what does the UK system need to look like to kind of uncentralize this, to decentralize all the kind of uh, the, the role of gas? We go from a central solution where everybody's on the same gas network to a decentralized solution where everybody, we basically have to answer the question 30 million times, what's the right alternative to gas for this building and why? 
right? And that's what we need to do over and over and over again. And it's a design question every single time, right? It can't be gas, but there are several options for what it could be, right? Um, heat pumps are going to be a big piece of it, uh, a, a very big piece, most likely. Um, we're going to have heat networks doing some amount of it, certainly a, a whole lot more than we have now. Uh, direct electric heating is going to make a lot of sense in a lot of cases where you have sort of small heating loads and it doesn't justify a big system. Hydrogen, as Tony said, is going to be part of the UK energy system. How much? We don't know. Doesn't make much sense for it to be heating our homes, but there will be some number of homes that make sense for it to be heated by, but that number will be very small, far less than the current gas grid is, right? We're certainly not going to have hydrogen in every home. Uh, and then some amount of hybrids, right? Just an, like a mix, combinations of everything else, all of the above, other biofuels will be in there somewhere uh, and things like that, right? Now I put the approximate sign before each one of those numbers, right? Because what the exact number is, nobody really knows. There's a lot of scenarios uh, and, and, and what these numbers are is uh, an average taken across all of the CCC scenarios from the last carbon budget. So it's a bit of an average, right? Uh, but the exact number isn't what matters. What matters is, that it's changing nearly every single building in the country, right? And it is the most uh, it's, it's the the most widespread mass uh, calibration ma and, and mass uh, um, uh, mass calibration mass specification exercise that we're going to have to do uh, since in, in this the this century really. This is a once a century, once a, a generation kind of uh, uh, transition. The last big one was 50 years ago when they installed the gas grid. The one before that was 50 years before that when they installed the electricity grid, right? What both of those big kind of uh, once or twice a century transitions have in common is that once they actually get moving, once we get serious about it, the big changes happen in a decade, right? The electricity grid went from standing start to every home linked up in about a decade. The gas grid, same thing. The net zero transition, we're going to have to do very much of the same thing, right? So a lot can happen in a decade, and this is a good way of visualizing that, right? Um, the like the numbers are probably too small to read. You can go back to the video and have a look if you want. What 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 matters is that we're showing every year from now to 2050. Uh, and in, in the legend on the right hand side, it has almost every single job and trade related to the built environment. So odds are your job is is, is on there if you work sort of in, in, in this sector. Right. And again, the exact numbers don't matter. What matters is that they all go up. They all go up very, very fast. Um, they all go. The baseline is current levels and they all go up from current levels really, really rapidly to meet those 2028 interim targets and then sort of staying at those levels onwards right through 2050 right so that's the pace and the scale of change that we need to get to uh, and as i said in the very top of the whole thing um, we need to find a way to get skills out there uh, and in practice uh, and in use much faster if we're going to stick to this timeline this pace and this scale so these net zero short courses that we've been mentioning, um, I'll kind of just sum them up extremely quickly. I'm sort of mindful of the time here, and so I don't want to kind of go on too long about the uh, uh, the courses themselves. What I'll do is just kind of run through what they are at a headline level, um, leave a slide on the screen, and then sort of open it up uh, for, well, I'll turn it back over to Pippa, and she can uh, uh, take us through it if we're going to ask any questions. Um, 
But basically, these four courses were created alongside industry partners, right? So we, we, we uh, consulted extensively with industry, including Bizria, groups like the Climate Framework, uh, Letty, a number of others, uh, and came up with a, a set of, uh, of courses that respond to sort of urgent industry needs and would have skills that could be rapidly taken up uh, in practice. So people could come in one semester, walk away with something that you can apply to your job very, very quickly. Right. Um, there's a very strong practical component. It's based sort of on uh, real examples of real buildings. And we have some wonderful site visits lined up uh, in, in, in London. Um, and there'll be a lot of sort of guest speakers and things that sort of tie it to industry. We've created four of these. The first one is called Designing Net Zero Buildings. So it's basically focusing on people who might have knowledge of buildings already, but not of designing buildings without fossil fuels, right? And, and there's a, a lot of feedback that most of us are still stuck in that paradigm of designing buildings that depend on fossil fuels, right? We default back to gas far more often than we can afford to. Um, it's not enough just to design a building, you have to actually operate the building in a net zero way throughout its lifetime, right? If we design a feature that doesn't work or that people don't understand, Again, we default back to gas, right? And I, we, we have actually examples of buildings in, uh, in, in our, even in our own campus where a green feature that was designed into the building didn't work effectively enough. You have to keep the lights on, you have to keep the heat going. So you end up getting a, a temporary gas boiler while you sort out the sort of the green features and make them work. So how to operate buildings in a net zero way throughout their lifetime is incredibly important. Um, the third one, I'm very excited about this. This is procuring net zero buildings. So we also had a lot of feedback from industry collaborators who were kind of in decision-making roles saying that they have responsibility for portfolios of projects, right? And they want to procure more net zero developments. They want to uh, get more net zero tenders. Um, but the entire industry is so, again, geared around these uh, fossil fuel paradigms that it's actually a lot harder than you would think to write a brief and stick to the brief and get a project through from beginning to end uh, in a way that sticks to the net zero vision that you have in mind. Even when you want to be net zero, is not as easy as you think to actually go and deliver it. So that's what this course is responding to. Uh, and then the last one of the four uh, is another one that I think is really interesting. So it's uh, leadership and management for net zero buildings. Um, we got, again, a lot of feedback from industry saying that they want to elevate the kind of future leaders within their organizations, the people who are kind of at that career step where they're about to enter more sort of team leadership roles or strategic roles, uh, and they want to empower them to cascade these kinds of changes throughout their organization. Right. So some of it is kind of leadership and management 101, a bit of kind of uh, uh, those fundamentals, but with a very strong emphasis on the value of net zero, how to sort of make decisions in uncertain environments, and then how to communicate the sort of value proposition that net zero represents among other decision makers in a way that kind of brings people along with you on the journey. So we're very excited about all these. As I say, I'll leave them here on the screen. Um, Pippa, I don't know if, uh, if I should throw back to you here. Uh, there's a bit of a summary there of, of all of them, but I'll probably throw back to you and let you take it from here. Thank you, Pippa. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, that, that, that's really handy. Um, so, because we're getting quite a lot of questions around these at the moment. The ones I'm seeing coming in are, are they, are they distance learning? Can you do more than one? And um, what's the difference between, you know, what about CPD and shouldn't they learn on the job? So this is where they really, really score. 
And we did lots of research to decide what to do. So first of all, the four different courses mean that you can focus on specific competencies. So you've got designing net zero, operating net zero, procuring net zero buildings, and then the leadership and management um, course. They are a mix of what we call blended learning. So you come into campus for a week, you probably use your leave or, or get your organization to support you in that. You come in for a week, you work with the, with all the cohorts together and you, you, you set up your projects, you go away and then you do online learning and self-directed learning in some parts. So you can fit it around your work, you come back together for um, a, a, a regroup, you, you then do the same again until you've done the the, sort of the two modules with, with, within the one term. They're rapid, they're immersive, they fit around your work and your life. We really, really want to make them accessible to returners, um, people with care responsibilities, people with families, people with, 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 with a working life, but they allow you to come in and, and do this rapid immersive learning. It's really, really critical that you come in on site because we will be working with London buildings, exemplars, and you will be going out on site. And um, I, and that's really, really critical. And the other thing that, that we, we got feedback on is, yes, it's a pain sometimes to have to sort of fit in a week on campus or um, you know, coming into London, but actually the campus experience massively, massively improves the learning experience. Look, I remember going to do to do some some studying, and actually it was the on campus bit that actually stuck in my mind. Um, so really, really rapid emerging. They're degree level, so they're they're, they're beyond CPD. Um, they're 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 um, all at module levels four to six. So they're really really high level learning. They're a really great alternative to a master's. You might already have a degree, but this will be supplementary. And um, they're the other thing that I think really needs stressing is they have very versatile entry criteria, because you can cite your experience or your qualifications. Come and talk to us. A lot of jobs we find. People who have come in, for example, in, into procurement or into operating net zero buildings may not have traditional qualifications that you would associate with those pathways. We don't want you to be excluded from learning. Come and talk to us. If you have experience, if you have other qualifications, we can look and see. So long as you're able to do that course, we we want this learning to, 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 to happen. And the other thing is um, we have um, uh, the new student loan, the lifelong learning um, uh, program basically means that everyone can can take out these lifelong um, student loans. So even if you've got you've got a student loan or whatever, you can take one out for this course. It's prorated to the cost of a degree. You put it on there. It doesn't cost you a penny up front, but you're getting ahead with this qualification. So I, I know I probably sound a bit evangelical because they're really, really, um, you know, they're 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 they are such a new space. They are. That's part of the the beauty that they occupy a very very new space between that CPD and and um, you know the top end. So, um, can I? Are there any other questions I need to answer? Actually, we had some further back. I'm just going to scroll back, and I'm going to say, um, Francis Chan asks, "Is it good to have a zero carbon building? I've been in a few that have been inoperable." Motorized blinds insufficiently rust, BEMS being incomprehensible, insufficient heat moving systems. You know, come on, there have been some net zero, some boo boos, haven't there, in the past? Aaron. Oh, 
I, he, he's speaking my language now. It's a very good question. And it's, it's, it's a really big part of why we put together things like this and why, uh, as I said at the very beginning, we're sort of shifting our curriculum to respond to those kinds of things because there's this there's this kind of very, really simple, it just has to work, right? It's a very simple mantra, like the buildings just have to work. If your building doesn't work, people will come up with makeshift solutions that make it work. You know, we've always, we've all seen those kind of um, split units bolted to the outside of buildings where, you know, the corner office was too hot and the manager wanted an air conditioned space and it wasn't designed well. So there's this cheap and dirty solution that wasn't part of the design bolted to the outside. So yes, we can and must do better. Yeah, and it's a massive, massive learning curve. I think that's the thing is it's a systems change. It's a massive learning curve. And and, and we we need to get the, the, the good with the bad. And also the soft landings thing is quite big as well, isn't it? Can I, for, can I just come in on that one? Yeah, Pepper? I think I think that it's, it's a really important point. We have seen examples of uh, low and net zero carbon buildings. Some of those early London plan buildings that were very ambitious and um, system I, I know biomass boilers went in in 20 uh, 2008 that were never switched on in you know government in, in government buildings and, and things um and uh, and we wouldn't put biomass boilers in the middle of the city anyway now for, for air quality reasons so there are continually new challenges and it, this ties in with the previous question that just above that from uh, azra who's who's um asking what are, what are the obstacles to net zero trans transition and it's it's exactly this we we have solutions we have buildings that we're, we're designing wizzy buildings and then they don't work and so the people who are going to procure and, and and commission the next building will not go for those solutions and i remember with the with the london plan it's uh, we're talking about skills for renewables uh installing renewable energy um you know if the first 100 renew, uh, photovoltaic systems or solar thermal systems going and they fail you will never get the next million it, it just won't it won't happen so uh, these are some of the really big challenges we have to design uh, that's fit for the future we have to make sure that the skills are there not just to design these better buildings but to maintain them install them properly and maintain them uh, and i've seen so many examples of where these buildings and and not being maintained and so the reason that they fail and, and for all of the things i think that francis chan put in there you know th th there are these motorized blinds there's all this new kit all this stuff bms systems with more data than we could possibly cope with so we don't use it um and so we clog up the servers with stuff that we never ever ever use keep it simple design better buildings so that they, they respond to the brief and and, uh, and are happier healthier places never forget what you're trying to do you're trying to create a space that is productive and healthy and happy and uh, and i think those are the agendas that that once you once you get over the hurdle that um uh, how we deliver the, those better outcomes with a low and low and zero carbon has to be just we have to do it that way that has to become a part of the mandate and we the the professionals who deliver these buildings will innovate to get there so i think you have to have this mix of regulation that says just compel people to do it uh, and and get uh, and get the these the demand side to say we will only have this quality of building and we the professionals will deliver the innovative solutions i'm a firm believer in that and that i'd just like to add because there are lots of questions about isn't it better to learn on the job yes it is but you have to learn what's the ne next thing coming down the track and then you learn on the job what the real challenges are to make that put that in place and then you become a better professional for it 
Yeah, and I, I would actually add to Tony's comment there, really, really important to learn on the job. You will be taking these skills back into your workplace. And one of the things that's really critical is being that influencer and communicator and the voice in those meetings where, where things are being discussed and decisions are being made, knowing how to do that is really, really critical. So you become then an influencer within your workplace as, as well as applying those skills actually into, into the job you're in. So... I think we're probably a little over time, but we're really happy to stay. If you're happy to stay, um, we, we've got we, we've we've got various questions. Sky. What? Yes. Um, first of all, thank you to all of you for presenting. Um, I'm going to share my screen now into everyone who asks questions into a prize draw, and I'm going to share my screen now. We're going to spin the wheel and see who won. Um, so let me know if you can see my screen. Can you see it? Yep. Okay, congratulations, Khan. Um, <laughs> please do contact me on LinkedIn so I can arrange getting the Amazon Echo Dot to you. Um, and thank you to everyone who attended. Um, we really hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. And I hope to see you at our next webinar. Um, Pippa, Aaron, or Tony, is there anything else you'd like to say? Nothing, nothing particularly, but um, we have got some hands up. So I wonder if, if I just put um, my email in the chat, shall I do that? Definitely. Um, just for anyone, and then Dan, Aaron, Tony, and I can all come back to you. We can, we can work out. Who, who needs answers um, from this? We loved your questions. Thank you so much. It was really, really good. Um, so do please, please get in touch if, if you have more questions and, and want to know more. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for attending. Um, and I hope to see you at our next webinar. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.